Hey guys, we wanted to take a moment and thank you for tuning into our church's podcast. This week's sermon is from our series Alpha and Omega. To learn more information about Sturkey Hills, you can find us at sturkey.church. Oh, and don't forget to hit subscribe to our podcast so that you can always stay up to date with our latest messages. We're so thankful for all that God has been doing in the life of our church and the part that you play in it. Thank you for listening and have a blessed day. Well, amen. That's a wonderful opportunity to worship our God. Amen. Amen. Now, today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to finish chapter 2. We're in our series called Alpha and Omega. Alpha being Genesis, Omega being Revelation, the bookends of God's infallible, inerrant word. And so we talked about in Genesis chapter 1, that is a theocentric chapter. That is a God chapter. That is a chapter that strictly focuses on the greatness of God. But yet when we read it, if you've ever began reading and you get into chapter 2, it looks a little weird because it's like a recount of what you read in chapter 1. But in fact, it's totally different because what God does in chapter 1, he gives us an origin to everything but himself. Because there is no origin, there is no beginning for God. He is eternal past, eternal future. All right. Now in chapter 2, he begins to develop a little bit more the apex or the pinnacle of all of his creation. And the wonderful news is for you this morning is that includes you. You are the pinnacle of God's creation. You are the only part of everything he did in those six days, the only thing that he breathed himself into. He breathed the Ruach Elohim into you and gave mankind a soul. You are the only part of his creation with a soul. Trees don't have a soul. Birds don't have a soul. Your beloved German shepherd ain't got a soul. Your cat, I guarantee they ain't got a soul. Okay. No soul. Look at your neighbor and say, no soul. But you, on the other hand, have a soul. God created you with a soul. That makes you different. So in chapter 2, he develops uh, a little bit more fully what, that, what you're supposed to look like as a, as a created being with a soul. And, and, and we talked about, and I'd never really seen it like this before, there's four pillars or legs to this soul being that if we learn those and understand these, it will help us live lives that are fulfilling and God-pleasing. And quite honestly, that should be your ultimate goal is to please God because you try to fulfill, have a, live a fulfilling life. You really do. It comes very naturally to live a life that's satisfying to yourself. We talked about in Genesis uh, chapter 2 in the beginning, you're created in the imago day, the image of God, and we've replaced that with imago me, okay? And, and so now we went need to get back to who it is that God has called us to be. So in chapter 2, we call this chapter, Make It Count, because honestly, you got one life to live. And we don't know how long that chapter is in God's economy. Your life, it could be very short, it could be very long. We simply don't know. But whatever that is, whatever God has ordained for you to have, we need to make it count. So look at your neighbor and say, you got to make it count. Okay, that's pretty good. Now, last week we talked about the first point, which is to look like your maker. Now, I know you say your mom and your daddy was your maker, okay, and they procreated you, but your maker is God. You were formed, yet in your mother's womb, God breathed on you. He made you. He created you with a design and a purpose and a plan, okay? So your maker is God. That's your ultimate maker. And you are an image bearer. You're supposed to, when God looks at you, his goal is to see himself in your being, he puts you here to see himself lived out on this planet. It's just that simple. Now, often we don't do that very well, and we're going to talk about that. So the first point was look like your maker. Point number two, and we'll finish our worship guide today, is to labor like it matters. Labor 
like it matters. In chapter two, beginning in verse five, it says there was no man to cultivate the ground. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Verse seven, the Lord God formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being or a soul. Verse eight, and the Lord God planted an orchard in the east in Eden and there he placed the man he had formed. Verse 15 now, the Lord God took the man, placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and to maintain it. Now let me just give you a summation of that narrative. God has created everything, all right? And the pinnacle is the man. He says, man, I, he looks around. He, he says this in his, in his scripture. He says he noticed that there was no one there to cultivate or to work the land, to care for this amazing garden called Eden, the Garden of Beginnings. And so he begins going further. He says, therefore, he formed a man. And then it says he formed the man and he placed him in the garden to do something to work. Look at your neighbor and say, you're supposed to work. Now, I know some of you adults been telling your teenager, you're supposed to work. Well, I'm going to reiterate. I'm going to give you some spiritual, scriptural spine. You're supposed to work. You and I were created to work. We are created for labor. Okay, now we live in a culture that's so messed up where we reward laziness, where it's like if you don't want to do anything, fine, we'll give you something. That's wrong. That is not scriptural. If you are unable to work, it's one thing. If you're able to work, you're supposed to work. Now, that can mean a lot of different things. It can mean a woman can work outside the home or work inside the home. It can mean a man works outside the home or man works inside the home, but he's supposed to work outside the home. It's just really that simple. Okay, now we're going to talk about it. We don't like to hear this stuff. Some of y'all, man, look at the just evil came out right now when I said that. Okay, well, I'm going to help you understand why we are what we are and why we process like that. Okay. So we live in a world, I, I want to tell my college students, college students and my high school students and my elementary school students and my young adults, they're the focus because they're just getting started. I want you to know you should have, you have every, absolutely every reason to be 100% successful. And I'm going to give you the four keys to make you rise above the rest. Now, if you want to act like the rest of your friends, you can, you can lower yourself to the rest of them. But if you want to rise above, I'm going to show you the keys. And it's beautiful. God's word says we were made to work. But we live in a world where the work ethic has not been passed. That baton ended up in the adults' pockets. Because we want to make it easier on our kids than it was on us so that Junior's not going to have to work. He's going to play 48 kinds of ball all seasons, all year long. There is no end to the ball season. He's going to sit home, play PlayStation, the girl's going to do whatever the girl's doing, but they're not going to get a job. If you got a job, if you have a job and you are uh, above whatever child labor is, 14 or whatever that is, praise Jesus, you have great parents. If your parents aren't making you work, okay, parents, make them work. You need to instill in them a work ethic because it's long gone. We're not passing it. So, so young people, you're already, if you will just work, you're cut above Okay, you will rise like cream to the top. Now, I want to show you some things that you can do. First thing I want to tell you, this sounds so simple, but you would, you would be amazed how true this is. First thing, show up every day. Look at your neighbor and say, show up every day. You say, show up every day. Yeah, show up every day. Show up, just show up every day. You're all, you, you, you immediately move to the front of the class just for showing up every day. All right? I remember in 1980, I went to college at Tennessee Tech. And I was raised going to school every day. Friends of mine would go less, would stay at home less than they came because their parents would just let them. My parents know. I mean, you going to school, 
but mom, they called off school because of the snow. I don't care. You need to go down and get an education. Okay. Go down there and read a book, something. Okay. Sit on the front porch. Got to go to school. So I went to college. I never missed a class. I, I, I went four years of bachelor's, getting my bachelor's degree and never missed a class. Okay. I had a cousin down there. I don't know that he ever went to a class. He'd, he would sit in the room. I'm not even making this up and watch the Flintstones. And what's the one with the cruise ship? Love boat. That's what, that was his education. Now he lasted back in the day. We didn't do semesters. He lasted about a quarter. Okay. I survived. Show up, just show up every day. Number two, work hard for your pay. Work hard for your pay. Listen to me. If you are a born again believer in Jesus Christ, you've been blood bought in his sacrifice. You should be the best employee in the company. You should be the first one there, the last one to leave in every moment of every day. It's given to King Jesus to give him your best. You should work hard for your pay. Now, it's important that you show up every day, but once you get there, work hard for your pay. Number three, be truthful in all you say, okay? Integrity, it's very lacking today, okay? Everywhere. So, so if you'll just speak the truth, just speak the truth, you'll rise to the top. Number four, be friendly along the way. I told you about, you know, Christmas time, we're Christmas shopping, and, and we went into uh, Dillard's or one of those stores, I think it was Dillard's, there's a young man working, and I know he'd been dealing with a bunch of nuts, okay, at Christmas season, but Kendra took four shirts up there for my son-in-law, Max, and we're standing in line, I looked over and had a sale rack over, there's good-looking shirts, and I, I went over and I said, hey, Kendra, won't we, this one, won't we swap this one for that one, and the guy looks at me and goes, I've already rung these up, I said, well, unring that, okay, <laughs> I'm paying you, and I didn't say that, but I thought it real hard in my face, okay. <laughs> Now, he had an attitude, okay? Be friendly along the way. So here it is. This is so cool. This, this, is, this just developed. Here it is. Ready? Show up every day. Work hard for your pay. Be truthful in all you say. Be friendly along the way. In a nutshell, act like you own a Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Am I telling you the truth? You go to Chick-fil-A, you would think they're making $80 an hour on commission for how many chicken nuggets they sell. Oh, pleasure. My pleasure. No, it's my pleasure. No, it's my pleasure. They wouldn't let you get out, okay? <laughs> now... I'm telling you, and everybody knows it's the best, so listen to me. You don't have to work Chick-fil-A to act like you work at Chick-fil-A. No matter where you are, no matter what you do, you act like that. You do those four things, I will promise you, I will promise you, you will rise above, and you will not be able to uh, keep up with the promotions you get. I'm not making that up. I am a walking testimony. I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree, okay? But I did that. My parents taught me that, and they didn't even know they were teaching me. They didn't know it was scriptural. They taught me that. And my first job, I showed up, and I was just doing that because that's what I did. And here they go. Kindred, raise, raise, promotion, raise, raise, raise. I'm not making that up. I'm not making that up. I'm a product of blessing, and I didn't even know why I was a product of it. Because my parents instilled me, instilled it in me. And they honestly, I don't think they know it's in Genesis chapter 2 that we were made to labor in a special, special way. So we got to labor like it matters. You say, well, that's a lot of pop psychology. Okay, fine, listen to scripture. Genesis 2.15, we talked about that God-formed man, put him in the garden to maintain and labor over the garden. What about Colossians 3.23? Whatever you are doing, work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not just to man. Proverbs 31, ladies, beautiful Proverbs 31, lady, beautiful wife, picture, image, 31, 15 through 18. She also gets up while it's still night 
and provides food for her household and a portion to her female servants. She considers a field and buys it from her own income. She plants a vineyard. She begins her work vigorously and she strengthens her arms and she knows that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out in the night. I mean, she is in the game. She is engaged. Women, you're supposed to work at whatever you do. If it's outside the home, if it's inside the home, you're supposed to work. How big a deal is it? Listen to what it says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 about providing. It says, for even when you, we were with you, we used to give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, neither should he eat. We live in a messed up society. We reward people for doing nothing. Oh, you didn't do anything? Here's a check. Okay? No, you're supposed to work. If you're able to work, you're, you are supposed to work so you can eat. Adults. Some of your kids ain't even cleaned up the room. They ought not get no lunch. <laughs> they won't even clean up their junk. Dirty socks hanging on a ceiling fan. Jock strap hanging on a bedpost. No lunch. That's what that means. Okay? Teach them to work. And if you don't work, it's for kids too. Tell your elementary schools, you ain't done no work. Sorry. Man, this is the best lunch I've ever had. Wish you were getting some. Maybe we'll save you some. You say, well, that's child abuse. It's child abuse not to teach your kids to work. Okay, there you go. Thought I'd throw that in. It's free. First Timothy 5, 8 says, but if anybody provides not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. For somebody who doesn't work to provide for his family is worse than a lost person. I don't even know how you get there from here. Is that a deeper part of hell, a hotter flame? I, I don't know, but it's worse than an infidel. So we got to look like our maker. We've got to labor like it matters. Number three, we've got to live like he tells you. Now, this is beautiful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you set, be set free today in, in what you've been entrapped in, okay? Listen to the beauty of freedom. What happens here is God has just breathed the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, into a man, making him a living soul, okay? At that point, he put in mankind a moral compass, the ability to choose right from wrong, an awareness that there is right and there, there is wrong. You say, are you sure of that? I absolutely am sure of that because in Genesis 2, uh, he tells us in verse 16, the first choice that we know that he had. I mean, Adam had, choice, had a choice to name the animals, but here we find a moral choice. Here's what it says, and I want you to see the reality of the victory that you should possess. The ability you have to live free. Listen to this. He says, then the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat from every tree of the orchard. Man, that's like a buffet. I mean, that's free. Look at your neighbor and say, free to eat every. Now, that's a problem for somebody who like, like me who loves to eat, okay? I mean, it's like this is buffet garden is what this, this is. I mean, you're free to eat everything. And then he says this, conjunction, he says, but, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. He says, you got this whole garden to run and play in. You got this whole garden, this whole abundance, any of it you can eat of, but, but there's the one tree. All I'm asking, just stay away from the one tree. We live in a world where it seems like, and if you talk to a lost person about Jesus, well, I just, I just feel like I'm going to have to give up all the stuff. When you come to Jesus, you are giving up nothing good. Excuse me. Yeah, you're giving up nothing good. You're giving up everything bad and gaining all of the good that is known to God. 
And so that's what this is about. This is about understanding the, the, the greatness of the freedom that you have. We had Judson, our grandson, last night, and he stayed all night with us. And at 4 o'clock in the morning, he decided nighttime was over. And, and we had a deal. I told Kendra, I said, i got to preach tomorrow, so you're going to have to you know, take care of that. She did, about 30 minutes. So 4.30 came, and he wanted his papa. okay? So I had to take care of him. And here's the thing. He, one minute he's sitting there. Next thing you know, I think I'm going to run over here and jump off the back of the couch. Kendra said, is that just boy? I said, yes, it is. We raised two girls. They never jumped off the couch that I know of. Okay. He likes just, there it is. Okay. He, why? Because he's in adventure land, man. I mean, it's like, ah, it's a big world. Listen, folks, we are created to understand that God has created the vastness of his creation that we sang about. And God says, it's yours. Be free and enjoy. But... I have some simple guidelines, and I want you to know that the freedom to live is far, far, far greater than the freedom to die. That's what he says. He says, you're free to eat from every tree to live, but then he says, but this one tree you're free to choose from, but when you do, you'll die. Now, here's what happens, and we'll see it next week in chapter three. Satan is really, really good at making the one thing we can't have look like it's better than all of the things we can have. He's really good at, in your life, the one thing that he really paints a rosy picture of, the one thing that seems to just lure your, you in, that seems to ensnare you. He's really good, man, at making that look attractive. Meanwhile, the whole world that God has given us, this freedom of this vastness he's offering, and yet we choose this one thing. And he says, in that one thing, you will surely die. John 8, 44 explains how he's so good at what he does. John 8, 44, Jesus says, when he lies, speaking to the devil, he says, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. Look at your neighbor and say, the devil's a liar. I want you to understand something. The devil can't tell you the truth because he's a liar and his native language is lies, okay? God can't tell you a lie because his native language is truthies, okay? God speaks truth, cannot lie. The devil speaks lie, cannot speak truth. And when we understand the magnitude of that, when we understand the realness of that, it is so real, okay? And when we understand it, we are able to, to fight better because we understand more about the enemy, so God allows man to choose. He puts in him this moral compass, the ability to kind of navigate through this life and make decisions for ourselves. And sometimes we just don't do very well at it. You don't, I don't, we don't. It's just true. But God has done that so we would have freedom. See, if God never, because I, I get asked sometimes, well, if God knew we were going to fail, if God knew Satan was going to, uh, Lucifer's going to be kicked out of heaven, cast to this earth as the serpent, and he knew he was so good that he convinced a third of the angels to fall with him. Why would God allow man, uh, Satan to come to this earth if he knew that men were going to fail? Because if he didn't allow us to fail, number one, we are not free moral agents. We are robots. And there's no glory in loving a robot. But God allowed us to fail so he could come to this earth and redeem us and save us. That's some glory stuff right there. That is good, good stuff. So I want you to know, no matter what you battle, 
If you back, God doesn't want you to be confused about what the truth is because God cannot lie. In fact, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, God is not the author of confusion but of peace. And so, so what we saw in Genesis 1, and we sang about it a little bit more, a little bit this morning, that creation still is obedient to God. In Genesis 1, we saw the first 10 commandments I'd never seen before. The, the, the God said, let those 10, and they still do that, okay? But then we're going to see in Exodus, oh, we won't study that anytime soon, but when we get to Exodus chapter 20, we'll see the 10 commandments. And they weren't given to point out how good you are at being righteous or living for God. They were given to point out how incredibly bad we are and how incredibly in need of a Savior we are. That's why the Ten Commandments were given. And, and so, so we understand that God has guidelines for our living. Now let me ask you this. This is a question looking for an answer. Have you ever began to tell somebody about Jesus? Share your testimony with somebody. Invite somebody to church. Say something about someone's lifestyle that you hear one of these two phrases. Don't you think that's a little intolerant? Have you ever heard that one? Say, I have. What about this one? Who made you the judge? Anybody heard that one? And that's how it comes out. So weeping and nasty as a devil. Who made you the judge? You know, full of the devil. That's what that is. I want to help you. I want to help you. I want you to know something. When that comes, when that happens, you can stand up strong in love and with peace in your countenance, you can look at them and say, God is an intolerant God. That's the only reason I share that. His intolerance is displayed in the Ten Commandments. If, you, if that's not enough, I can give you more. God is an intolerant God. Now, he's a gracious and forgiving and just and righteous God, but he's intolerant. God has his way of doing things, and that's just all they are to it. And I share this from J. Vernon McGee. He, J. Vernon McGee, he says that. He says, he says now, now, friends, this is God's universe, and he has his way of doing things. And you may rise up and say, well, maybe I have my way of doing things. And he said, but, friend, you don't have a universe. It's that simple. It's his. He gives the rules, and he's tolerant of obeying the rules. And he's intolerant of disobedience to the rules. And so the, the sooner we understand that, the sooner we can respond when somebody throws that intolerant trump card out there. What about this one? Who made you to judge? Okay, what do we do with that one? What do we do with that one? Who made you to judge? I just hate that line. Here's the deal. If you are sharing with someone what has already been revealed in Scripture, you're not judging you are conveying or sharing truth that God has already judged. So you're not the judge. You're just the bearer of information. And let me tell you something. You can look at them and say, you can call me judgmental if you want. I'm just telling you what God said in his word. And if I know what God said in his word, and I sit and watch you be disobedient, and I never tell you, it proves one thing. I don't love you. See, to speak the truth in love, to share God's counsel in love is to demonstrate, is to demonstrate a true love for someone rather than just keep your mouth shut and let them go to hell in a handbasket, okay? And ultimately, if they die, they spend eternity separated from God. That's not love. That's hate in its, in its most prominent form because we don't often share. So, so I wrote this. Because this captions or nutshells what we're talking about. Choose to be free because God has made you free to choose. That is so powerful and so good. Okay? Choose to be free because God has made you free to choose. 
Now, every day we choose, every time we make a decision, we choose something. And in our choices, we either move closer to God's will or further away from God's will. There is no in-between. Well, God didn't really care about this. He cares about everything. We talked about in Genesis 1. He's omnipotent and omniscient. He knows all things and powerful over all things. So he cares about all things. And so he cares about your every decision. 1 Corinthians 6.12 helps us because it says, Paul says, I have the right to do anything. But not everything is beneficial. He says, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. He's saying, you're free to choose, but choose well because he's allowed you the freedom to choose. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So you have every reason to walk free, not in bondage, okay? You just have to choose that freedom. And so you got to look like your maker, labor like it matters, and live like he tells you. Number four, you got to love like he loves you. Now, this is where it gets a little rough, okay? Because we're going to talk about the creation of the woman and how this thing originally looked. And I already can, for, I, I can forecast and prophesy some of the expressions I'm going to get, but I'm not going to share it with you. I just know it in my head because I saw it in their early service. And I called them out, okay? Now, some of y'all are going to fight back. You, you just do that the whole time. Okay, Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18, it says, So the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a companion for him who corresponds to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every living animal, the field, every bird of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man named all the animals, the birds of the air, the living creatures of the field, but for Adam... No, com no companion who corresponded to him was found, verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was asleep, he took part of the man's side, and he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the part he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother and unites with his wife, and they become a new family. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were unashamed. So let's go back and look at the big picture of the narrative here. God has created everything. He's created man. He's got him in the garden to take care of it. He brings the animals to him, and he names them. And just a sidebar, I think it's funny. He had Adam name the, all of the animals before the woman ever got there. I know, what, I know why, if it was me. In my household, it'd be like this. Woo, you big long neck spotted. So I'm going to call you a giraffe. Kendra, why do you want to call it that? Because <laughs> it looks like a giraffe. That's why. It's got long neck spots. Makes it look like a giraffe. I don't, but she would don't you think it'd be better? And she might be right to call it something else. But we never would get through past the giraffe. And they had to knock all this out like quick. Okay? And so no. No discussion. Okay? It's just Mr. Giraffe, Miss Giraffe, Mr. Squirrel, Miss Squirrel, Mr. Rabbit, Miss Rabbit, Miss Rhinoceros, Mr. Rhinoceros, Mr. Dinosaur, Miss Dinosaur, and Adam, there's no companion. Now, if you're single, I want you to notice something. <clears throat> God noticed Adam had no companion before Adam ever began to bellyache about being alone. You don't find, you know, after the first animals come to him, and Adam's like, how come I don't have a Miss Adam? He's not crying. He's not bellyaching. He's just doing his job. So if you're single, do your job. Just do what God's called you to do. He's got you in his sights. 
He's got you. And if he wants to send you a companion, he'll get, send you a good one. Okay. He had me in his sights. I dated these other girls. Listen, Judson, my grandson goes to first Baptist Academy. Got two little girlfriends over there. I'm very proud of that in today's world. Okay. They said he, he sings what holds their hands, sings and dances with them. That's my boy. Okay. That's right. Hold the girl's hand, dance with them. That's what I'm talking about. But I got news for Judson. I hate to break his little heart. Sure hate to hate break them other little girl's heart. It probably ain't going to last. <laughs> Just probably not going to last. Some of you high schoolers and college students, some of y'all sitting next to each other, I'm just going to go ahead and break your bubble. Probably ain't going to last. <laughs> probably ain't going to last. I mean, it might. Prove me wrong. It's okay. Okay? But it probably ain't going to last. Why do we do that? Why do we go through all that junk? Okay, God has you in his sights and he will provide a companion. And it's not some run of the mill everyday companion. It's a one of a kind, specially formulated and designed for you. Because this is so cool. Listen to me. Because he says he saw Adam. Adam needed. Uh, I'm going to go old school KJV. Help meet. I said that one day and back here in the office, Joe and Kyle said, don't you mean a helper? Because they're not old school. See, they're like NASB, okay? So you mean helper, uh, old school, KJV, help meet. That's the word in KJV, help meet, okay? You know what that is? It is a helper. It is a companion designed to come beside. Why? Listen, this is so cool. Because God said, Adam, first anesthetic, go to sleep, deep sleep, reached in, took a rib, fashioned it into a woman from right here, from right here, because the woman is to be right here beside the man, right here under his arm so he could protect his bride, right here so they navigate and go through life together, making each other complete, helping each other to be all that God has called them to be, not made from the sole of his feet so he would rule over her, not made from the crown of his head that she would rule over him. It's very simple. Pre-fall condition. Before the sin in the garden, God says, Adam, you need help. Ladies, look at you, man, and say, you need some help. It's the truth. Pause. Ladies, listen. They need help, but they don't want it. And they sure not going to ask for it. They will drive to Tuscaloosa to get to Myrtle Beach before they will ask directions. <laughs> Okay, I'm telling you, been there, done that. I got to tell about my grandson. This, it starts early. We were Christmas shopping just right for Christmas. And Judson, on the adventure, we were in the car waiting on somebody to get out there. He decides he wants to slither between the seat and the door. It's about that wide. Now, he's about halfway through there. And Kendra reaches up to help him because she's helpmeet. Oh, she's going to help him. He said, no, myself. He didn't want no help. I got this. Famous last words. I got this. Next thing you know, I'm kidding. You couldn't have driven him in there with a hammer. Well, his legs was contort, leg was contorted around. He's, he's, I mean, he's all wedged in there, red in the face, barely breathe. He said, help, tuck, help, tuck. And, and, and I, 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 if I was Kendra, I would have said, I ain't helping you. You got this. Okay, but you know, she helped him. Now listen, it comes very early. And, and in next week, chapter three, we'll see why a man don't want any help. Because you ladies, you ain't real good at being the helper that God intended you to be. Now, that's where the weeping and gnashing of teeth come out by the women, okay? Because we're fallen, man. We're po When Eve showed up, she tucked herself right up 
under Adam's big old naked arm and they walk into the garden. Man, it will help you. You're going to help me. Get a little shoe. Man, it's pure and shameless, naked in the garden. I'm telling you, I wish I'd have been Adam. That was so cool, just running through the garden naked with your wife. It's good. It's the way God designed it. I'm telling you, man. Read your Bible. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. She was the helper. She, she, she was formed to help him, to help him, and it was good. But today, because we're fallen, man, we, we got women's rights, and I'm for women's rights. I'm not against women. But in the church, man, even in the church, let me tell you what happens, what, what the product of the fall between men and women are in Genesis chapter 3. Let me spin that forward about 6,000 years, I believe, to today. What does that look like in the, in the, say, in the 70s? Women's rights was a big deal, and women started championing their cause, man, and they wanted leadership and all that. And in the church, you had all these men who originally served in the church, and they just started laying down the reins. They said, oh, you want it? You want to be in charge? You, you want to be large in charge? Hey, yeah, I'll, I'll walk away. So where I was raised, and it was very typical of American church, society, culture, the women did all the work. You go to Bible school. I remember seeing the preacher there. I don't remember seeing a man there. You had women doing the games, women doing the songs, women doing the Bible story, women doing the crafts, women doing uh, the snacks. Wonderful. Great. I'm glad women were doing the snacks. We had enough, and it was good. If it had been a man, neither one of those would have been true. All right? So they were doing it. But, but, but then in our church, you know, you might have a woman doing the, leading the music. You might have a woman teaching uh, the, the high school class. And there's nothing wrong with any of that, I'm telling you. But meanwhile, the men who were given the original obligation to lead, you know where they were in the 1970s? Stand out front smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Man, they drifted so far from Genesis chapter 2. They just walked outside the church, figured it's better to smoke a cigarette, let the women do all the work. And I'm not against women, but I'm telling you this. I was a product of that. And I remember sitting in churches as a middle schooler and a high schooler, watching women do their stuff. Man, it was cool. My mom was one of them. And they loved me, and I loved them. It was awesome. But I remember the preacher then would get up there, and he, was, he, didn't, he just didn't preach with a lot of conviction. He just kind of talked, you know, and I was like, where's the power? Where's the reality? Where's the greatness of God's truth? And, and it really set a young man back on his heels. And I'm not alone. By the grace of God, God put us in a church in Chattanooga where the preacher was a man of God who, who understood God's word. And he preached hard. And he taught women how to be better women for God and for their families. And he taught men how to be better leaders for their God and for their family. He taught that. And the church was different. It was alive. And I want you to know something today. Listen, women, men, none is better, none is worse. We are co-equal. We're made from, listen, women were made from men. And listen, there's not one person in here who didn't come from a woman. I mean, it is beautiful how God did it. God said, man, you're here. Go to sleep. Woman, you're here. Woman came from man, and from that point forward, every man, every woman came from woman. That's so cool. So there is none greater. God knows what he's doing. I told somebody, I say it all the time, if we will simply let God be God, he is really good at doing his job. And so God knows what he's doing. And so we live in this world where we struggle with what it is we're supposed to do and how it is we're supposed to act. Now, we're going to talk about marriage probably in February, but I want you to know something right now. 
God has given us four primary pillars, four legs to live our life on. And this last one is to love like he loves. Now, here's the greatness of it. Check this out. In the garden, God married the first man and woman. It's the first marriage ceremony. You can trace and track marriage from Genesis to Revelation and all in between. The first, one of the first great miracles Jesus performed was converting the water into wine in, at the wedding of Cana, okay? It's celebrated throughout the Bible. But why is it so important that marriage is done well and done right according to God's guidelines? Because it's a picture of Jesus and the church. Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. Here's the truth. I ain't that good looking of a groom. I'm a real ugly bride physically. But when God sees my redeemed soul bought and paid for in the sacrificial blood of Jesus, he sees me as his beautiful bride. And I'm quite all right with that. Because the church is the forever bride of Jesus. That we will always walk right beside Jesus. He will be our groom in heaven. And he has demonstrated marriage throughout the Bible to help us understand what it's supposed to look like. Now, I got a question for you. If you thought for a second forever was going to look like your marriage, would you want to be there? I mean, it ain't a whole lot different than the alternative of where we go if we're lost. So if you're here today and you're married, I want you to know something. God loves you, and he wants your marriage to be beautiful. And until it falls under the guidelines of God's word, found right here in Genesis or over in Ephesians in the New Testament, we'll talk about it next month. Until it does that, it will never be anything you want it to be, and it will never be anything that God wants it to be, which is God honoring. So as we sum this chapter up I got to thinking about what it means to be a man because this burden it's a burden my marriage is not perfect either okay because I married Kendra and she married me let me finish (laughs) so hers is less perfect than mine because she married me okay but I was thinking about how great it's supposed to be. Like if you look back at Adam and Eve and you think about him being, you know, her being his helper and, and him being uh, her protector and her leader. And, and I remembered when we were in the Philippines, uh, the, the, the missionaries that we were with wanted to reward us and uh, they wanted to give us a horseback ride up Mount Taal. It's a volcano in the Philippines. And we were all excited and so we get on horses and all the little horses in the Philippines people are little and their horses are like little horses they're like little ponies and I don't do good on a little pony okay and so they put me in the back of the line because I had to go get some bigger horses and and so Kelsey who's now in uh, Honduras and Kendra were with me and off into the sunset they rode on their little pony and the the Philippines are taking them up the mountain, up this little dirt, windy road. And meanwhile, I'm standing over here exposed. And this is right when the movie's Taken came out. And I'm thinking, they're going to ride them off into the sunset. I'm never going to see them again. I'm supposed to be the man. I'm supposed to be the protectors. <laughs> I just kind of spined up in that much at the dog. And so 
they bring over this little bit bigger horse and I got on it and I start winding over there and the saddle starts sliding over and they took me down this road. Meanwhile, they're going up the mountain and they said, oh, we tighten the saddle. Okay, okay. We get on it. Happened again. Finally, I'm, I'm losing it. I'm, I'm thinking, no, they're setting me up, man. They're stealing my family. I got off the horse. I started running up Mount Tail. Stupid, but I did it. Halfway up the mountain, the little girl catches up. Sell your horse. I don't want your horse. Okay. So when I got to the top of the mountain, they were alive and they were safe. And it, when I thought about that, I thought, that's what a man does who loves his family like God loves his family. They will die on the side of a volcano to protect them. And that's why it's so important, church, that you don't talk badly about the church because the church is the bride of Christ. And he takes his bride real, real serious. So the next time you start yang-yang about the church or you hear somebody, just nip it. Just tell them, say, don't be talking about the bride of Jesus. He doesn't like that. You're talking about his wife, okay? And so how do we wrap this up and how do we move forward? Well, making it count is what chapter two is all about as human beings. And I want to tell you, when God looks at you, he wants to see an image of himself. He wants to see him in you. But here's what happens. Chapter three, the image gets very broken. It's as if we are mirrors. And when God looks at us, he wants to see himself. But in chapter three, we take that mirror and we bang it on the ground and it shatters. And now when God looks at us, he sees a shattered image of himself. And what happens in chapter two? These four things, listen to this. Jesus did it for you. Jesus did all four of these for you. He came to fix the image. He came to restore God's image in you. You see, when you receive Christ, he takes up residence in your life. And, and he changes your image. You're, 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 now you are in the image of God because Jesus is standing in front of you. In Colossians 1.15, it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Romans 8.29 says, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Do you understand that? When God looked at Jesus, he saw the full image of himself because he was his perfect, spotless uh, son. He was the sacrifice, okay? And when Jesus comes into our life, he changes our image, and it says Jesus is the first one to carry the fullness of his image, only the first of many brothers and sisters who will ultimately conform to his image. And so, church... What do we do? What do we do? We surrender and say, God, I want you to change my image. Fill me with Jesus. Fill me with your spirit. Because what Jesus came to do is to change your image. Jesus came to labor. Jesus did the finished work of God on a cross. Jesus came to live like God said. He was perfect and without sin. Jesus came to love like God loves, which is grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so if you're here today and you're born again, you're a child of God. Don't leave these doors today 
without a realization that you are called for so much more than what you're living for. You are designed for so much more than what you live every day of every week. You are called to live in the imago day, the image of God. You are called to labor so the world wonders what's different about you. You're called to live like God says to live, just reckless abandon to the truth of God, not worrying what people think or what the world says we're supposed to do. And lastly, love, love, love. Because the only commandment that Jesus gave us was to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors as yourself. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes.